Hello and welcome to the Around the Nation podcast for the week of Monday, November 26th. I'm Pat Coleman. And I'm Keith McMillan. And the Around the Nation podcast is sponsored by the City of Salem, hosts of Stag Bowl 40. Tickets on sale now. Go to www.salemciviccenter.com for more information. And as we are down now to the final eight, Keith, it it seemed like the uh, overall this week had, um, I mean, obviously not a lot of surprises because we have uh, the maximum uh, top seven uh, teams advancing out of our top 25 poll to the national uh, quarterfinals. One through seven, and then number nine. Uh, number eight w- or uh, number eight was not going to make it if they were going to be uh, eliminated by a higher-ranked team in the uh, second round, they, a game they didn't even get to. But point being, uh, we did not have a whole lot of uh, surprises in this round, and we didn't have a whole lot of close games either. No, uh, we didn't really have the uh, the nail biters that we had in round one, and and sometimes that happens, especially in these early rounds, as the elite and the semi-elite teams separate themselves from the pretty good teams. But but I think too it was a case of across the board on Saturday, uh, you know, difficult weather, snowing in in a couple of places, um, teams that had problems with turnovers that that never really got on track. You know, Cortland State was one of those. Uh, North Central was another one of those teams. Salisbury put the ball on the ground. You know, teams that probably would have played a better game uh, if they'd been able to take care of the ball. You know, some of the credit obviously goes to the defense. But I I think some of these games, uh, pretty much all the games, got away from from the team that ended up losing, except for the uh, St. Thomas Elmhurst game. That was the only one that was really tight uh, well into the fourth quarter. The Cortland State-Wesley game, for example, uh, Wesley scores twice before its offense even touches the ball. Yeah, and and you know, big a big uh, early interception uh, by Mike Brandenburg in that game, and uh, you know, Sustin Capipula had a um, had a, a fumble, you know, that that turnover that that helped turn that game early as well. Um, but for but for you look at the stats in that game, Cortland Cortland State outgained Wesley. Cortland State had the ball longer than Wesley, and they lost fifty six six. You know, so it, Wesley was uh, opportunistic. On Saturday, they certainly found ways to, uh, you know, to, to get on the board quickly and to and to make that game not competitive. And I, I think when you're the underdog, when you're going to play one of the the, the few teams in in Division Three that has a name recognition that that um, maybe casts a little fear in, into the opposition. If it, you know, it's Mountain Union, it's Wesley, it's you know Whitewater. Obviously, they're not in the playoffs, but. Um, Mary Hart and Baylor and a few other teams, Linfield is in that mix. You know, St. Thomas may be in that mix now. When you talk about going to play those teams at their place, you got to get off to a good start. And if you, you put the ball on the ground a couple times and uh, or, you, or, you know, like in Cortland State's case, you give up the, touch, the touchdowns, you know, to a safety and to a linebacker uh, before, like you said, before the team even gets on the field uh, or the, the offense even gets on the field. It's real tough to come back for that uh, from that. And, you know, I, I think... That's going to be something that we talk about as as we talk about this week's matchups coming up. You know, Hobart's got to go to St. Thomas. Widener's got to go to Mount Union. And part of the battle for both of those teams is to go there and and get off to a good start. Believe uh, you can stay in the game. And if something bad does happen, not to let that game get away from you. And I think in, in a several cases uh, in Saturday's eight second round games, you know, the game really got away from, from uh, certain teams. In uh – for example, I would talk about uh, Bethel Oshkosh. We'll talk about all eight games, obviously. But uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, a, a team that has to come out and I, I think of it as leaving it all on the field. Uh, Oshkosh isn't a, a team that has earned that uh, 
that name recognition, that fear yet uh, as, as a program because this is their first uh, foray of any sort into the playoffs, let alone a deep one. But this is an instance where uh, Bethel went up 14 nothing. They had a, a an 80-play drive uh, and a 99-yard drive in the uh, first 20, 21 minutes, uh, one of which was kept alive by a fake punt at uh, for Bethel at its own 25-yard line. Bethel clearly knew coming in that uh, they were giving up a lot of talent uh, or giving up a lot in the talent department and they were they were pretty determined not to uh, not to leave anything in their bag of tricks and they went up 14 nothing before uh, Oshkosh scored the uh, 37 points after that yeah and, and that fits the profile of the first Oshkosh too where they gave up the first 10 points to St. Jessica and then uh, you know ran off 55 points uh, to, to close that game out, and they did the same thing. And, and I don't think that's something they can continue to do, um, you know, going out to Linfield this week. They, they're they not going to want to get behind in that game because Linfield, um, you know, the way they treated North Central on Saturday, they, they, they North Central probably was an even match with, uh, with Linfield in a lot of ways and uh, fell behind early, and, and there was just no chance for them uh, to come back in this game. It's interesting that you say, Pat, that, that Bethel was giving up a lot in the talent department um, because you would think – a uh, a fairly one of the top level, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the top level teams from from the Mayak and one of the top level teams from the Wyak would be a fairly good matchup. And even though Bethel was a second place team and and isn't necessarily one of the nationally elite teams year to year, uh, they've made deep runs in the playoffs before, and, uh, and and we know they they've they recruit pretty well. They have pretty good uh, talent. But but I think probably a lot of that is 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 Steve Johnson's coaching is. Um, guys being dedicated to the program. A lot of it is homemade. You know, one guy that was impressive early in that game was uh, was Mitch Hallstrom, the, the great wide receiver for Bethel. He really was, uh, and it was uh, it was un- it, it was atypical for Bethel as well. That they really uh, prefer to to focus on the run game, but they they came in and Steve Johnson said this in the post game. The, the Bethel coach he said they had eleven deep strikes in their arsenal in their playbook for Saturday, and they used several of them in the. In the first couple quarters, um, you know, Hallstrom was uh, Hallstrom was open, um, you know, and we will uh, hear uh, Pat Cerrone, the Oshkosh head coach, talk about that in just a moment. Um, you know, a 55-yard touchdown pass that uh, was the one that made it a a seven-nothing game early on. Um, and in fact, Bethel had the ball at midfield midway through the quarter and was in a position to perhaps uh, put another uh, a score on the board, make it even 21 or 17 nothing before half. And instead, uh, Ryan Stefaniak uh, stepped in front of an Eric Peterson pass and intercepted it, returned it uh, down to the 26-yard line, and Oshkosh was in the end zone two plays later. Now, however, lest you think that was some brilliant coaching move, Ryan Stefaniak later confessed he had no idea what was going on. I didn't get the call, so we were kind of panicking, and then... I just, I just read it was a pass, and he stared the guy down. And I was lucky enough to get over there and make the play. And that's a great clip, and that's you know kind of one of the funny stories, I guess, of of this week here. Uh, you know that the game-changing play was was not even uh, in, intended. And I wonder if that doesn't tell us a little bit about the uh, the makeup of that team that they play loose. You know, given the fact that they've fallen behind in in, in both games and and. Haven't gotten down on themselves, been able to come back against, uh, you know, at least against Bethel, a pretty solid opponent. And uh, I, I like what I'm hearing from Pat Cerrone, from, uh, you know, the, the, the 
different players that, that I've heard talk so far now for Oshkosh. I think they've, they've got a, a good attitude and they sound like they're, they could be a fun team to follow, uh, whether it's one more week or, or three more weeks, we'll have to see. Cerrone actually had an explanation for why the team comes out a little bit flat, and it has to do with the uh, the way the NCAA pregame is set up. It, he says for their uh, for their conference games or for their home games, they don't come out of the locker room until there's about four minutes left on the clock. But uh, the NCAA scripts everything practically, including the you know, when the teams come out of the locker room. So he said. You know, this team doesn't really know what to do with the extra 10 minutes. But if you want to hear more from Pat Cerrone, hold on a second here. We got some more. He doesn't agree with the assessment that Stefaniak's interception is actually the turning point. I think turning point is when we just warmed down and that was it. You can kind of sense it. I'm sure you did in the crowd. Just I sensed it. I was like, wow, they, they, they just disappeared there you know, in the third quarter. And uh, that's a great feeling, and it, that's a huge compliment to these players. I mean, D-line-wise, they were coming off saying, Coach, their old line's tired. I'm sure the old line was saying the same thing, were they not? I mean, and that's when we – this is what it's built for. You know, our offense is built for this, you know. Nate Wera, Cole Myra, Caleb Voss, you know, Mitch Hintz, it don't matter. Whipper for it's built to run option down your throat, and then to, you know, if we need to spread it out, we can. And defensively, you know, we gave up – Uncharacteristically, two plays there. I mean, even the, the fourth down touchdown, I mean, that, that was on me all the way. And he's talking about that third quarter, Keith, a, a quarter in which Oshkosh scored on uh, three consecutive possessions. They ran up 220 yards of total offense. And Bethel really, by, the, by about the middle of it, just looked beat. Because here's what Oshkosh does, for those who don't know, is when that offense gets on a roll, it's a no huddle. And it's, and it's, a, it's, not, just a, it's not just a no huddle. It's a... It's a it's maybe not quite a, a full-blown hurry-up no-huddle offense, but it's pretty close, and they just they just really come at you. And the, this game was, you know, in a position where, you know, Bethel came into the third quarter leading, but it was pretty much over about three and a half minutes into that quarter. Yeah, I mean, that, that third quarter was a huge turning point in the game, and it, it's it's weird that, that Coach Cerrone said that. I felt like he, he was the one, he was the quote that I read that said the the Stefaniak interception was was one of the turning points. But in any case, that offense, Pat, you did mention, you know, the the way they play. And I think it, it's worth noting, too, that it's not just the hurry up, but it's all the motion that goes on before the plays. So so not as as defensively, not only are you probably not used to playing at that pace, at that tempo, um, you got a lot of motion to try to adjust to uh, a lot of things you want to read at, you know, pre-snap. You don't have time to do that. And then they're, 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 you know, hurrying it up on you there and it's option stuff. So you have a lot of keys to read after a ball snap. It's just, it's a lot of, it's a lot happening really fast for a defense who's not used to seeing it. And it'll be a big challenge for Linfield this weekend, who's, who's had really two pretty great defensive performances so far in the playoffs against probably the, the, the best two first round, you know, the, the best two matchups or the toughest first and second round games is what I'm trying to say. So Linfield has acquitted itself pretty well so far, and it's got a big challenge coming up this week at going against this Oshkosh offense. Right, and, and Linfield, of course, which beat North Central by the score of 30-14, uh, is the only team that's left here that faced two ranked teams in the first two weeks, uh, mostly because of geography. They had, to place, they had to play Pacific Lutheran in the first round instead of getting uh, someone such as maybe St. Celastica or uh, St. Norbert, something like that. So they uh, they start with a team they've already seen before, and then they open with a uh, and then they continue with a team that uh, is a 
a co-champion of a pretty strong conference, and they, they they pretty much handled them. I mean, the the 30-14 is a little closer than it was uh, because North Central finally put a couple of scores together in the final 18 minutes of the game. But um, you know, Linfield, for example, um, was up 17 nothing at the half, and the uh, and that was about the time that the Oshkosh portion of the news conference took place. And and Cerrone was just talking about uh, Linfield the whole way through. Never any thought that they might be playing North Central or any, you know, um, you know, no. <laughs> there was no couching of it. They were just, uh, yeah, we're getting on the plane to go to Oregon. Yeah, well, and and turned out that way. And, and North Central did, you know, put together a couple of drives in the second half. Uh, you know, a, a really, really just the 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 one uh, seven play drive, and the other one I think was set up by a turnover. But you know. The way Linfield has played so far in in these first two games, I think they they've gotten it, gotten it done with turnovers and uh, and, and with just Mickey Inns in, in the passing game, and um, they haven't had to to really pull out the full arsenal because they've been in good position. And, you know, at least in in this game, they got up early, and when you know when I got a chance to to watch a little bit and listen to a little bit of that broadcast as I was getting lost driving out of Chester, and. Um, <laughs> I'm so sorry. That's all right. It it, it actually was kind of nice to to peek in. It was nice that I could pull it up on my phone and and at least when the car was stopped I could I could watch the plays and then and listen to them otherwise. But um you know, I think North Central the the broadcasters felt like part part of what they did was was it wasn't that Linfield had made these great plays to uh, to cause a turnover so much as as North Central just put the ball on the ground. I think you you may maybe make an exception for the uh, the dumb Dominique Forrest uh, 73 yard interception return in the uh, in the second quarter that turned it from a 7-0 game to a, to a 14 nothing game. But you know so far for Linfield turnovers have been the big story five against Pacific Lutheran seven against North Central and if if you can generate that many turnovers and take care of the ball yourself uh, you know you you pretty much got it you put yourself in in good position to win. Yeah, actually, you know, when you when you take the ball away that many times, it's kind of surprising that the score was that close. Yeah, to be to be quite honest, you know, the this I mean, that's a huge number, seven turnovers and it was uh it was only uh two fumbles for North Central and I guess that leaves five interceptions. Yes, five interceptions of uh Spencer Stanick. And and you know, that's a quarterback who's who's been pretty good for most of the season. You know, I think North Central's more run based than than most teams are these days, but but Stanick's been a, a pretty good quarterback and I, and that's a credit to the to the Linfield defense, to be quite honest, to 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 swarm to that degree where you can pick a guy off five times. And um Linfield right now is you know, s- certain teams that are still alive, Wesley being one of them, um have have had quite a few tests during the season. They built their regular season schedule that way. You know, Mary Harden Baylor had a couple tests. Linfield has had the really has had two tough tests so far in the playoffs, and I think you know nothing they'll see against Oshkosh, even though it's it's completely different style and, and maybe bigger players and all that. I, I think they'll be ready for that game, partially because they're already a good team to begin with, but partially because they've had to play Pacific Lutheran and North Central so far. Yeah, and 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 let's look at that game. I think that certainly. Uh, what you're saying, I think about you know maybe the speed and the quality of the game. Uh, you know, Linfield should should certainly be uh, in you know already in high gear because they already know what significant uh, you know playoff strength looks like. Whereas, you know, uh, Oshkosh has played uh, Saint Scholastica and they played Bethel, um, and that's not I don't think nearly enough to get you 
prepared for a game such as uh, Linfield is going to provide. Yeah, and and the thing is, both of these teams are already pretty good. You know, they if the bracket were matched up differently, they might both be favored this week. You know, if if the eight teams left were were, were mixed up somehow, but they're not. They're two teams coming out of the West and pretty much Northwest Conference and and the WIAC. You, uh, you're going to have to meet meet up at some point. And actually, you know, the the West has done pretty well for itself, and we should maybe tip the cap to the to the uh, selection committee for making the bracket the way they did because uh, you you have three elite teams from the West who are still left in, in this bracket, and and if it had been done strictly by region. You know, St. Thomas and and Linfield or Oshkosh, somebody would have been matched up earlier in this thing, and it's uh it's definitely a credit to way the to the way the bracket was set up. I would say even something else about the bracket, and not just what we mentioned before about the how the ranked teams are still here, but you know, even at this point in the bracket, the if if you were to go just against our poll here in the quarterfinals, it it kind of works out pretty well. The the number one team is playing the the lowest ranked team remaining. That's uh, number one Mountain Union against Widener. Uh, you have number two Mary Harden Baylor playing against number six, so it's not you know we don't have anywhere we don't have like a two three matchup at this level. We have three playing five, and we have four playing seven. That's about as good as you're going to get at this point. I, I agree with that, and and it's it's the whole purpose of the playoffs is to have the you know eight best teams left, and and Cal Lutheran, as we mentioned, is the is the team that was ranked number eight and uh, and isn't still alive in this in this, but. Um, they wouldn't have been. They would have had to play Linfield if they had advanced out of the first round anyway. And so somebody, it wasn't possible to, to move the top eight. But to get nine of the of the uh, or eight of the top nine ranked teams in the in the final eight, uh, you know, says a lot, I guess, about the poll. But it also says a lot about the the quality of these teams, uh, really all season, and uh, and that they, you know, that nobody's stumbled so far. It, it means that we got a really nice elite eight set up, but it also kind of means that we haven't had those big upsets that sometimes make the first and second round so exciting. Looking ahead at uh, strengths and weaknesses for Oshkosh and Linfield, I, I think obviously we, we've spent a lot of time talking about the Oshkosh offense and about Nate Wera uh, and, and Cole Myra and, you know, over that, over the, past six to eight weeks and I think one of the uh, kind of unsung parts of Oshkosh that's been really strong is the linebacking core especially uh, led by Ryan Stefaniak well yeah we you know we mentioned that big play and, and I think you know in in this day and age you have to have I think linebackers and safeties that can do so many things they have to be able to, to play the run and they have to be able to cover and the teams that have guys who can do both are the teams that generally have really successful defenses and pretty much everybody left in this thing has a has a pretty good defense and and you know that's part of the reason why uh, these teams are still here is because they're well rounded. But I, I really think you know your linebackers and safeties more so than ten years ago, fifteen years ago are so key because the guys have to be able to cover tight ends, have to be able to sometimes get matched up on slot receivers, and then you still have to be able to play the run and and diagnose those plays, those those play action fakes that um, you know that turn into big plays in, in these playoff games and game changing plays. I think on the on the Oshkosh side for in terms of weaknesses, uh, other than other than the slow start, which is you know something that they can probably deal with, I'd have to think that the one glaring spot is just lack of uh, lack of of playoff experience. I don't see a, a particular unit on this team that has uh, any particular uh, you know weakness compared to the others. They're they're pretty uh, they're pretty consistent across the board. Yeah, and it's weird that lack of playoff experience goes back to something you know, I said a couple minutes ago that these guys play loose, they talk loose, they seem to have a, they seem to be having a good time w- with this whole thing and just taking in the experience, which is really one of the keys to success. To not really ever assume 
that the next week is is given to enjoy it all and in and to as part of enjoying it remember that you have to work for everything you get that that you're not entitled to anything and and that's a um you know I, I like the attitude of this Oshkosh team they have a feel and I think a lot of people have been saying that probably since they beat Whitewater that this team could be destined for something but right now you know the road is pretty tough there, there, there's you know four teams coming from that side of the bracket with a chance to get to Salem and you know maybe the you know the num- the number one ranked team in this thing are on the other side of the bracket but I don't think there's an easy road at all for Oshkosh uh, or for Linfield so that playoff inexperience you know if it manifests itself in 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 terms of looseness and in terms of these uh, the Oshkosh team going out to Linfield and not being intimidated then that's great and if it turns into a you know where Linfield jumps on them quickly and 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 they panic um you know then that could be trouble but I think they've they've shown that they can handle falling behind early how about the Linfield side of this matchup? I think their problem, you know, strength and weakness wise, is uh, for weakness they've got to be able to run the ball, and and right now they they haven't done that successfully. You know, you can maybe give them a little bit of a pass for the North Central game because they got ahead, you know, seventeen nothing in the first half, twenty four nothing, thirty to nothing actually at one point in the game, and so they didn't have to really rely on the run. Although sometimes when you're up, you want to run the ball to kill the clock. They finished with uh, twenty six rushing yards. And part of the reason for the lack of a running game is is having the big injury to Josh Hill early in the season, um, somebody who was you know basically their one of their best offensive players uh, who's not a part of this right now. And and they've got a they've got a nice enough passing game where they can get by some weeks. But I don't think you're going to be able to get by Oshkosh and and then you know the Hobart St. Thomas winner and then win in Salem if they don't um, at least run the ball well enough to keep teams honest. You know, and, and if they ever have to, if they're at some point not playing in in, Lynn, in in Oregon, where the weather's probably a little bit nicer than it was at most of the other playoff sites, and nicer than it will be in Salem in December, um, you know, you're going to have to be able to run the ball just because of the weather with the wind swirling, snow, and all this other stuff. Sometimes doesn't lend itself to the passing game. Well, I know that in the Pacific Northwest, obviously, rain is pretty much a uh, a constant uh, presence, at least if not on game day, then throughout the course of the week. Yeah, and, and and so you know, I, I know they know how to deal with it, and I'm not trying to say that that weather itself can can derail this thing. But I think if you're looking for a a hole in a team that is otherwise pretty much well rounded, you know, they get after it on the defensive line, they force in turnovers, uh, they show they can they, they they generate points on defense, but in both their playoff games with interception returns for touchdowns, uh, you know, the the passing game is maybe as good as it's been since the days of Brett Elliott. Um, there's a lot to like about this team, but I think the the lack of a running game is the one thing that could be a problem for them, uh, especially you know playing Oshkosh this week. You mentioned obviously there's a lot of strengths. What's the one you want to point to? Forcing the turnovers on defense, coach will tell you, and it's maybe it's cliche, but if you can get the if you can get a few turnovers, you know you can change a game quickly. And 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 if you match the forcing the turnovers. With uh, with not having not you know giving the advantage in a playoff game that um you know that 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 helps tilt things when the teams talent wise are evenly matched. Moving on to the bottom left bracket and the the teams that moved on in that bottom left bracket on Saturday Hobart with the win against Wittenberg and and St Thomas with the uh, the brackets nail biter against Elmhurst. Start with Hobart uh, Keith is the uh, the statesman. Handled pretty much uh, Wittenberg, who had uh, you know obviously survived that 
crazy game against Heidelberg the week before. And uh, you know, for for Hobart, this is you know where it's right where the seedings expected them to be. And I, I think that you know we kind of knew at some point, kind of figured out over the course of the season that this was not necessarily the kind of Whitberg Whit Whitberg. That's a word. Uh, the kind of uh, Hobart team that you know might be in a position where in previous years a team that goes undefeated uh, against maybe not so great competition just kind of drifts up the pole for no particular reason. But in this case, we really had an inkling that Hobart was this good. Yeah, and I think it applies actually to both Hobart and Widener, the two teams that when you look at this bracket and who's left, the, the teams that jump out as the teams that don't have the the history or they aren't quite as as dominant as some of the teams left you know we make the exception for Oshkosh you know this is their first deep run but they're they're from the Wyack so we kind of make an exception for them but I think I think Hobart and Widener belong in this round uh, both those teams are well-rounded offensively defensively um, you you know there's a lot to like about about Hobart at this point, and you know, you, you talk talk about a team that 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 comes in 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 Wittenberg, scoring 52 points in in week one against Heidelberg, and then Hobart holds them to 135 yards of total offense. And I know it was snowy, windy, and and, and not perfect conditions to play a football game on Saturday in Geneva, but it, it, that's impressive. Well, and, and you have to be able to win that way uh, and and win those kind of games in November, as we've mentioned. Uh, throughout the course of most of the last seven years, let's put it that way. Um, Hobart is a team that's built around defense and running the ball. And I guess one of the big questions going into this week, which is probably not something you and I are going to be able to answer right now, is the status of Nick Strang, who left as uh, as Hobart's starting quarterback during the course of this game. Yeah, and, and you know his health has been in question for a, for a couple weeks now, and he was able to give it a go, but... Uh... I, I don't know if it hurts Hobart as much as it hurts a normal team. You, you never want to lose your your leader uh, or your quarterback, but because Hobart is able to run the ball so effectively and play defense so effectively, they're they're not out there. You know, they they, they don't mind spreading the field and, and trying to throw the ball, but I don't think that's their calling card. And so, you know, it's not the same as if Linfield were to lose Mickey Inns or something like that, or you know, Mount Union were to lose Kevin Burke. You, Hobart. It is so built around the run that I think they can they can survive whether whether strain can go or not. And uh, you know that their their numbers from Saturday: 286 rushing yards, 39 minutes time of possession. They they basically killed the killed the clock in the second half. Uh, once they got ahead on Wittenberg, they were able to just run the ball. I don't think they they hardly threw it. Um, you know, once the, the third quarter got underway, and and if you don't have to, if you can win that way, that's great. You know, I don't know if that will be so successful against St. Thomas because one of St. Thomas' strengths is stopping the run. Your point about Strang is well taken, though. I mean, remember last year in the first-round game against Linfield, you know, Strang didn't play at all. Uh, Kelly Olney, who quarterbacked that game, was one of the guys uh, He came in in relief of Strang on Saturday as well. Didn't have great numbers, but, you know, they, uh, you know, in – Back in uh, the 2011 game, he definitely did not have great numbers on Saturday. But, you know, Hobart was uh, was in position in that game all the way throughout last year. Yeah, you mean the game at Wesley. In, right, in the, the game round. without, the other game with, the previous game without Strang, yes. Right, and um, yeah, that was a 35-28 game. And that was the game that I think if you ask people around the Hobart program, 
let let the the statesmen know that they can really compete on this level and it's it's taken till really till this week right now for them to get a game where where they can prove it again because you know beating Wittenberg and uh and beating Washington and Lee as important as that is you know and as much as we don't want to take playoff wins for granted especially for a team from the Liberty League and from the East region I think um this is Hobart's big chance in a lot of ways to go out to St. Thomas beat a team with with name recognition and prove that this program belongs. And when you look at the way St. Thomas played on Saturday, and I'm sure we'll get to that in a few minutes here, they showed some some vulnerability against Elmhurst. This is really an opening for for Hobart and for the East Region and for the Liberty League. You know, I, I, I'm putting all that on, on on this Hobart team. You know, they're carrying a lot of burdens, but but uh, this yeah, is no a pressure opportunity. Yeah, no pressure, no pressure. Just the the entire East Region's. Uh, hopes on your shoulders, no big deal. Um, you know, one of the things that you said about uh, about Hobart, especially in the second half against Wittenberg, is something that really applied for Elmhurst against St. Thomas on Saturday as well. You know, they really used their ground game to shorten the game. I mean, St. Thomas only took 50 snaps the entire game. Yeah, and 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 if you're dealing with a team that that maybe is more talented than you, you want to control the game. You know, that was uh, that's a lot of these teams. Um, that 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 played on Saturday. That that's part of their goal is to control the game with tempo. To you know Salisbury, uh, they they want to hang on to the ball the whole game. Uh, Oshkosh wants to do it with tempo. You know there there's there's um certain there's a lot of different ways you try to impose your will on the game. And I think in in the case of uh, Elmhurst, they they got off to a good start and they they were doing that. And if you look at the numbers, you know Scotty Williams had a good day uh, running the ball, finished his career over two thousand yards, but. Bottom line is is when St. Thomas fell behind, their defense was able to turn it up, and Elmhurst uh, only scored three points in the final 48 minutes of that game. Scotty Williams, 27 carries for 118 yards. It's, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I have to think that's the the best performance by a, an opposing running back against St. Thomas this year. That is really, as you alluded to a few moments ago, that's one of the things they really do well is stop the run. Yeah, and, and, and you know, you don't get – this far, I mean, to a degree, every program has to have a calling card, uh, something that they do well, and a lot of times it's it's built on defense. You know, things that work, regardless of the type of game, the type of opponent that you're playing. You know, if you could stop the run, make a team one-dimensional, you know, you got a chance every week. And and St. Thomas has been able to do that, um, you know, for the past few years now. But I think this, you could tell me more than than I could tell you because you seen uh, St. Thomas play a few times this year. You know, this may be their best defense. Uh, I think that, you know, considering how much they've really had to lean on it and rely on it this year, uh, I think so. You know, I talked with uh, Ayo Adowu, the I mispronounced that, Ayo Adowu, the uh, one of the defensive linemen for, for the Tommies a few weeks back, and, you know, I, I, I proposed that to him, you know, is it is it more impressive this year because you know, because they've really relied on the defense more. And he, you know, just kind of rejected out of hand the possibility that uh, that they rely more, more on the defense. But I really think that that's the case, uh, especially as uh, the season has worn on. You know, we've mentioned it before. St. Thomas has, uh, has struggled with injuries on the offensive side, especially. Um, you know, they're... They're they're relying on a on a freshman running back Brenton Braddock. Um, they're relying on almost entirely freshman receiving core. There's one sophomore and the tight end is a senior. That's the that's their most experienced receiver is uh, is senior tight end Logan Marks. So they are really relying on the defense to uh, to really control the game and and put the offense in you know positions to succeed. Um, 
you know, two of those, two of these scores, and remember, St. Thomas only scored 24 points. One of them is an 86-yard fumble return, and the other is a uh, is a is a 188-yard catch to a by a freshman receiver. Um, you know, there's two big plays that uh, are the difference between St. Thomas staying home and Elmer's advancing. Yeah, and I, th- I think you know we talked about opportunity when it, as it relates to Hobart. It's a big opportunity for St. Thomas too because. In all honesty, they're the only team without a, one of the giants in its bracket. I mean, St. Thomas is the giant of its bracket, I guess you'd say. Um, you got Mountain Union, Wesley, and Mary Harden Baylor on the other side. And then you have Linfield uh, having to play Oshkosh. So those teams, one of those takes out each other. And, and St. Thomas, you know, Hobart's not a weak team, but this is a big opportunity for, for St. Thomas to get through and, and maybe finally get through to Salem. You know, and and to be honest with you, last year's St. Thomas team, and this is probably true of Wesley as well. Last year's team were really the teams that were built to get through. They were the they were the you know the senior dominated teams with the with the superstars, the game changing, special you know once in a decade type of players on the team. And uh, St. Thomas is not that team this year. It's it's so much more built on just that solid foundation that Glenn Caruso, I guess, has built over the course of of several years now. And uh, it still, though, represents a big opportunity. The interesting thing, of course, about this matchup is you got two teams that play great defense and and want to be able to run the ball. And it's going to be one of those games, especially if if the weather in Minnesota is rough this week. It could just be one of those games that's just ugly, you know. But but it doesn't matter how you win. Both of the, either of those teams would be happy to win ugly and move on. Obviously, a lot of a lot can change in the weather department between now and Saturday, but the uh, long-range forecast is for a day with a high in the high 40s and rain, which would be kind of unusual for the first week of December. Um, and you know, again, uh, the second year in a row that an up, uh, that an upstate New York team has gotten the opportunity to come out to St. Paul in December. Yeah, and and what's weird about that is you know we th- figure the Empire Eight is probably the stronger of the two leagues. From uh, between the Empire and the Liberty League, um, St. John Fisher went out to St. Thomas last season, and we got the chance to talk to some St. Thomas players at, at, at a you know point after that game, and they said that you know the quality of of play, St. John Fisher just doesn't match up with a WIAC team or or many of the MIAC teams. And whenever I get a chance, I should ask somebody, how does Team X compare to the teams you see all in the year? And uh, and, and, you know, because because we need that insight when we take a look at things from a national perspective, how do they come? And so this is a real a, a big opportunity. Again, another thing we'll throw on Hobart, although I guess it's kind of the same thing that we said earlier. It, it, you're representing New York, you know, state football now, uh, the type of players that come out of the, the, the east and, and New York and Pennsylvania and, and you know, New England, the type of guys that end up at Hobart. Can they go out to Minnesota and, and win at St. Thomas? So you mentioned, of course, up ahead, uh, St. Thomas versus Hobart, and these are two teams that we expect to be uh, fairly similar to each other. And I, what I have to expect, at the very least, if we're talking about run game and defense, at the very least, it should be a quick game. Yeah, and and you know we've seen some those over the the course of uh, watching, you know, certain teams match up these run based teams, and the game can be about you know two fifteen. Um, and that'll be about the time it will get over local time, you know, because everything kicks at, at noon in the playoffs. It may be a fast game, but, you, you know, you, there's, there's no way to tell 
uh, how these things will go because um, you know each team may feel like they they have a, a need to open it up a little bit or to change what they do a little bit because running the ball is going to be so difficult against both of these run defenses. Right, because neither of these teams are going to let the other team just run the ball up the middle, that's for sure. Obviously, that's a strength, at the very least on the St. Thomas side, run defense. And I think the weakness probably would have to be uh, you know, the, the passing offense, or actually, to be honest with you, maybe even the run offense, just because um, they have been able to throw the ball pretty well because they have a, a fair number of interchangeable parts, even though those guys are all young. But in the running game, you know, in a lot of cases, they've had to rely on Matt O'Connell. How about on the, uh, um, on the Hobart side of the ball? As far as uh, the strengths? <laughs> I, I think I think their strength is basically that that run defense and also the fact that they can they will spread the field, but they'll spread the field to be able to run the ball more effectively. And uh, that, you know, a lot of times these days you see teams spread it out and throw it. And when we get to talk about Widener, I'll tell you about some of the formations that they do, some of the things uh, that that they do to confuse defenses. You know, Hobart is really not necessarily trying to do that. I think they're trying to they're still trying to run the ball, and and that's what they're best at playing that great defense and running it, and uh, you know controlling the clock again is an impressive thirty nine minutes uh, time of possession against Wittenberg. We're moving on to the top right hand bracket, uh, in which we talk about two games that were basically over before the. Uh, first quarter gun uh, in terms of Mary Harden Baylor just pretty much pounding on Franklin by the score of 63-17 it was 42 nothing uh 21 minutes into the ball game there that's i mean that is amazing and, and we've seen numbers like that uh from Mary Harden Baylor against some of the lower teams in their conference but you don't see the team do that in a playoff game except maybe Mount Union in the first round and so I, I think this makes this Mary Harden Baylor team scary in the sense that they they are really on a roll. They're basically they, they seem like they're they're unstoppable at this point. And of course, you know the competition gets a little tougher when you get Wesley, and then you know you get the Widener Mountain Union winner next week. It's it's not going to be quite as easy. And Mary Harden Baylor has had some games during the season. Mostly, I'm thinking of uh, of the Harden Simmons game and the first time that they played Wesley, where the points weren't so easy to come by and they had to work a little bit more to earn them. And I think that's the big uh, exciting thing on, on both Wesley's part and Mary Harden Baylor's part is they know this is like an annual tradition for them to these guys to meet up in the playoffs. And the thing about it is they both respect the challenge. You know, for, for Mary Harden Baylor, Ladarrell Bailey was out of the game in the second quarter. I'm sure Justin Sodler didn't play much longer than that. These guys, uh, you know, a lot of the key parts are going to come into this game really rested as well. Yeah, rested. But then again, you haven't played four quarters in how many weeks? You know, Wesley, they're probably two easiest games of the season have, have been the past two weeks in the playoffs. You know, they they were playing 26-17 games all during the regular season, those tight 32-25, you know, the, the score of the first Mary Harden-Baylor-Wesley game. So uh, Wesley had played a whole bunch of nail biters and then it has had a couple of easy games, big blowouts in the, in the playoffs. And, uh, you know, I, I think both teams know because they're so familiar with each other, having met so many times previously in the playoffs, I think we're getting close to 10 here. We might be at eight meetings now if we count the regular season game. Um, you know, they're so familiar with each other. And so I don't think there's going to be really any surprises on Saturday. It's just going to be lining up and, and who, you know, I mean, cliche as it sounds, who executes better, who who imposes their will on the other team and who limits mistakes. You know, there, there's not going to be, you know, no team 
even probably in the American Southwest is more familiar with with what Mary Harden Baylor does than Wesley. And no team brings a defense that's capable of stopping it, uh, you know, as well as Wesley does. And so it's really just a matter of of going out and doing it. I think one of the unsung strengths for Wesley this year really has been their pass defense. We talk so much about the offense. Uh, we don't really talk about the defensive side of the ball, and especially in a case where you have, you know, so many uh, of the guys in that back seven, so to speak, uh, turned over from last year. There was a there was a pretty senior-laden uh, defense last year, and a lot of those names are new this time around. They've done really well. And, and sometimes when you bring in some some new guys to a group, though, those guys have been waiting their turn, and they're actually more talented, you know, or, or very talented, and they just didn't know the system as well. They didn't get the reps in practice. And, and for, you know, whatever reason, Wesley's defense has really come together this season. I think it's been probably, you know, pretty underrated or, or at least unsung in the sense that given the strength of teams that they've had to play through the course of the season because of the schedule that they built, um, the numbers that they put up defensively haven't been overwhelming. They haven't been like, uh, you know, the Mount Union numbers or the Hobart numbers or, or, or some of the other teams that have put up just, you know, ridiculous defensive numbers. But, give you know, this is the type of – this is when Wesley's schedule that they played in the regular season is going to pay off for them because they've played teams the caliber of Mary Harden-Baylor. They've actually played Mary Harden-Baylor already. So, you know, I, I don't think there's there's going to be any surprises. And in, in defensively, they're they're up for this matchup, you know, Pat, you mentioned the pass defense, and I think that kind of ties in with what what the weakness might be for Mary Harden Baylor is if they fall behind and they're forced to pass. You know, they've done it better this year than than in previous years, but I still don't think that's their strength, and that's certainly not the way they would choose to to uh, chart the game if they could. They'd still rather just run it, run it, run it, run it if they could. First time around uh, in the first meeting between these two teams, Daryl Bailey, sixteen of twenty six passing for one hundred and thirty eight yards and two scores. Uh, Bailey ran 10 times for 34 yards. Darius Wilson, 24 carries for 84 and was a big uh, was a big factor catching balls out of the backfield as well. You know, that's one of the things we haven't really talked about is uh, possibly at all, to be honest with you. And it, it hasn't been as much of a factor lately, but early on, you know, he was they, they were throwing a lot more conservative. They were throwing, you know, more passes out of the out of the backfield like that. And lately they've been, you know, throwing the ball downfield a lot. Well, I think part of it, you know, is is trying to get the ball in the hands of your your best playmaker, and and you know, Ladarrell Bailey is that, but also Darius Wilson is probably their next best offensive player, and uh, you want to get him touches any way you can. You know, he was hurt and banged up early in the season, and so they any anything you can do to to um, get him the ball is a good thing. But I think also when you play teams that you're familiar with, and and Wesley is of course familiar with Mary Harden Baylor, they already know what your base stuff is going to be. And so you, you might try to run a few of your base plays and, and and those aren't working because those guys are ready for it and they've practiced against it all week. Then you try to dial up some things that are a little different. And I wouldn't be surprised uh, on Saturday to see both teams uh, do a little bit of that. You know, Wesley's pretty creative offensively to begin with, but Mary Harden Baylor, you know, may need to get a little creative on offense if they're, they're stuff that works every week and, and it's worked so well this season that that offense has is pretty much just um you know been humming every single week you know wesley's the only one that that's really slowed it down at all and uh they you know they may have to do some things that are a little bit out of character this week to to match what wesley does but i, I think at the same time you know um it, it's mary hart baylor's defense is gonna have to you know slow wesley down as well i i think that one of the things that you know, could have potentially been a factor is the fact that, you know, Mary Harden Baylor is 
in a position where they could be looking forward to playing Mount Union in the uh, national semifinals a week after this. But then again, on the other hand, I think Wesley is like possibly the one national opponent that could really grab their attention because they're so familiar with each other and because there's so much mutual respect between the two programs. I, I would say you hit that exactly on the head. And, and you know, this this is a we've been hinting at, we've been looking forward to, if possibly happens, Mayor Harden-Baylor, you know, going to Mount Union and it's certainly not guaranteed but if it happens again you know you, it brings up those memories from 2004 uh, where, where May Harden Baylor went to Alliance and won in the, in, with a great fourth quarter and so you know and I think a lot of people think these are the two best teams in the country right now although the uh, you know the selection committee didn't agree so we may be looking forward to that game but I think you're absolutely right the, the one opponent that, that would hold Mary Harden-Baylor's attention, that would humble Mary Harden-Baylor at this point in the season, um, would be Wesley. And so I, I don't think there's going to be any problem on either side of these teams getting focused for this game, practicing hard, knowing they don't play well. If they don't put together their best game of the season, they're going home. There are so many strengths for each of these two teams, and, and no doubt, for, for good reason, they're two of the elite uh, six, so to speak, teams in Division Three right now. Um, We've talked about you know one of the strengths for Wesley. Uh, you know we we talk a lot about the play of Ladarrell Bailey. Um, you know, but of course, Mary Harden Baylor has this great tradition of not just strong defense but strong linebackers, and they are continuing that this time around. Sorry, Javis Jones is has really you know he's had some games this season, and and he's made big plays in big games, and uh, that's what you need when you when you have a guy on defense who can not only you know go sideline to sideline as far as um, matching the speed on offense, tracking guys down, but you know, making plays, uh, causing fumbles, interceptions, uh, pretty much everything that, that you want a guy on defense to do as far as being a leader, stirring things up. And so, uh, you know, even though we don't talk about the Mary Harden Baylor defense all that much, um, you know, he's he's a big catalyst for what they do, and they haven't had to stop teams very much this season but they have played Harden Simmons they have played Louisiana College a couple of tough teams and to be honest you know Franklin offensively was on a roll you know they, they scored 42 points in the first round against Adrian and they did hardly anything uh, against Mary Harden Baylor and so we you know you really realize that we're getting to the point in the season now where where it's just the the real cream of the crop that's left. You said something curious there and I think I'm going to try to clarify it and then you can feel free to Shout me down if you like. Um, you said Mary Harden Baylor hasn't had to stop teams, and I think someone who d doesn't understand what the nature of the American Southwest Conference was this year might look at that and go, "Are you crazy? They've given up. Uh, they gave up 28 points twice. They gave up 32 points." Um, I think what you're trying to say is they haven't had to stop a team that, with their defense in a spot where the game depended on it. They've given up. They've given up some points. They've given up some yards to some of these crazy out of the box offenses down there. But they haven't needed the defense to win a game for them. Is that what you're getting at? More or less. That that their offense has been so prolific that they haven't had many close games. Yeah, I did get a chance to watch a real good portion of the May Harden Baylor Harden Simmons game, and and that was the you know May Harden Baylor looked human in that game. And they've looked superhuman in, in pretty much every other game. I, I didn't see the Wesley game earlier this year either, but I imagine they looked, you know, like they had some flaws in that game. And, and they've played some games this season. You know, when you're scoring 60 and 70 points offensively, you know, it's, it's almost flawless. And so, yeah, when I say they, they haven't had to stop, it's, you're right. They haven't had too many crucial points in games where they've needed the defense to step up. But I, I, we can point to that first 
Mary Harden Baylor Wesley game where you know a game was tied at 19 at one point. It was uh, 26-19 uh, later in, in that in that game, and Mary Harden Baylor's defense had to come up with some big stops against Wesley, and they they did have to play well against Harden Simmons. You know, even though they gave up the 32 points and they won that game 42-32, they had to come up with some big stops in the second half. But it, it's been a long time since they since they've played a game that's close where the defense has needed to play really well for four quarters. Is there a weakness for Mary Harden Baylor? Yeah, I, I think we hit on it earlier that if they fall behind early and they're forced to throw to get back in the game, and that's one thing you know that has always stood out to me about that 2004 game at Mount Union where they were behind by multiple scores in the fourth quarter and they still stuck to the run. I think though, um, in the case of, of of Wesley, you know, if Wesley's able to get on top of them either by generating turnovers or getting a quick score early, and and Mary Hart Baylor feels the need to to go outside of what it does you know it could be trouble for them i think that's how they they've they've run into trouble before against wesley you know trying to trying to to catch up and be something that they're not and uh, i think when they get you know backed into that corner um and, and sometimes they're forced to throw the ball a little bit more than they want to they get into a little bit of trouble on the wesley side um you know Wesley hasn't had a great running game this year. Uh, Shane McSweeney was such a big part of it uh, from the quarterback position, and, and Justin Sadler is just not that kind of runner. Um, and they've, you know, they've they've split carries around, and they do average 110 yards a game, but that's not, you know, necessarily a great number for a team that's, you know, won as many games as Wesley has. Yeah, I don't think it's quite as drastic as maybe Linfield with the uh, with the lack of a run game, but it's certainly an issue for Wesley, and and you know they've got to figure out ways to score points, especially when they're going to face a defense as, as tough as Mary Harden Baylor. You know, they like to hit the big plays to Steve Kadosu, to Matt Barilli, but if they if they don't have those big plays and it becomes a game of, uh, you know, having to really put together long drives and grind it out, West is going to have to get some of those plays by the run game. And I think they'll probably also try to, to you'll be a little creative offensively, whether it's screens, throwing stuff out of the backfield, bringing in Chris Cummings, uh, who's their 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 Tebow like quarterback? Where they they bring in a guy who, who you know takes snaps and runs read option. Um, but, you know they can do that with him. Uh, Wesley is able to get creative offensively, and and we may see some of that on Saturday. Moving on to the bottom right hand bracket, and that is uh, the one in which Mount Union advanced by rolling past Johns Hopkins, and then the game you were at, Keith, in which Widener defeated Salisbury. So let's start with uh, the Mount Union Johns Hopkins game. Yeah, the thing that stands out to me about about this game is that it's you see the final score, fifty five fourteen, and you thirteen even thirteen, and, and you chalk up, you just chalk it up as another Mountain Union blowout, another you know Mountain Union beating another east east eastish southish team, you know, and and uh, in, in one of these early rounds, and it's kind of what they do, and it's so easy for us to just put these games away as blowouts from the start. And I got a chance to watch a little bit of the game on Sports Time Ohio, and that really wasn't the case. Johns Hopkins, uh, you know, midway through the, the the first quarter, comes up with a goal line stand against Mount Union, and uh, and then coming out after that goal line stand, um, Robbie Mady throws a throws a pass at a tight end. It kind of bounces off the tight end's hands, and um, Charles Diesel snatches it out of the air for a big pick around the 10 or 15-yard line. Mount Union goes in and scores. Johns Hopkins takes the kickoff. Another interception by Nick Driscoll. Mount Union scores. And then you'd think the route is on, but um, even you know early in the second quarter, Jonathan Rigaud for, uh, for Johns Hopkins 
uh, breaks off a 75-yard touchdown run, and it's a 21-7 game at that point. And Mountain Union really did have to to earn it, at least in the first half in this game. It wasn't just, you know, like the way the Mary Harden-Baylor game was, where it was, you know, every time they touched the ball, they scored. And that's kind of been a familiar case in, in the Mountain Union games that I've seen, you know. Um, maybe not so much the Capital game, but the Heidelberg game, the the Baldwin-Wallace game, and now this Johns Hopkins one where they've struggled a little bit in the first quarter. And so that's kind of like it's hard to find a flaw with Mountain Union. And and I guess we're reaching or I'm reaching a little bit to say, well, this game was close in the first half before they blew them out. But it it goes to show that when you get at this point in the season um, and Mountain Union starts to play tougher teams, that these guys are not a shoe in to win. They're not completely unbeatable. They're definitely the favorite to get to Salem and win it all. But I don't think they're they're a team without flaws that can't be beaten. You know, if a Johns Hopkins can put up a goal line stand against them, break off a 75 yard touchdown run against them, they do have some weaknesses. And and uh, and, and and some of these teams that are, that are here in the in the final eight have a chance to play with Mountain Union. It's not a foregone conclusion. But I think they're also they don't make mistakes and they're they're so tough to beat. Based on two scoreless drives in the first quarter? I mean, I, I'm glad you were able to hold that for as long as you're able to hold that just to, just to uh, <laughs> back me with that. But, you know, in all honesty, and this is this is based on also, you know, the, the first half of the Heidelberg game and the first quarter against Baldwin-Wallace where it's just not the same as like the, the Mountain Union 2008 or 2007 teams where they were just completely, totally dominant. They were better than you at every position, you know, be it O-line, quarterback was was a genius. You know, the running back was a guy for all for the ages. The wide receiver goes to the NFL. The defense was great. It's not that team. You know, this team has, uh, I think, even at this point in the season, even though they've sort of sorted out their their quarterback question mark because Kevin Burke's really emerged. I still don't think they have a they have a running back that they're totally comfortable with or that's a dominant guy. Um Blair Skilleter gets some of the carries, TJ Lattimore. Um yeah, there's other guys that they work into the game, you know, offensively. So I don't know that they're 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 quite the the dominant team that they've been, but here's two things that are consistent with all Mount Union teams and and this these year's teams this year's team has it uh, i think it's the the great defense you know uh, and i think it's also the 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 passing efficiency the quarterback that just doesn't make mistakes uh burke i think has four interceptions on the year or he, at least he had four going into the game uh, on saturday so you know widener's gonna have its work cut out for it but it, it's weird I, I i started like widener a lot this week from being at that game and i i think they've um I, I, I like them so much, I may irrationally think they have a chance. Let's talk about uh, Jasper Collins for uh, for a second, because there's a guy that you know I, I think everybody on the Division Three football planet can agree is a guy who's uh, really playing at a high level right now. Well, it's easy to say that after you have a five touchdown game, and that's and why the, I said it. Thing about his five touchdowns, though, Pat, is it, uh, it it was all kinds of touchdowns. It wasn't you know. Uh, five deep bombs or or five quick slants. You know he he uh, one of them um, after one of those early turnovers was a pass from Burke. He caught around the four yard line. And he had to fight his way into the end zone. Another play was just play action. Safety bit up and he ran right past him. And so you, you know he's got now 18 touchdowns on the season, counting counting those five on Saturday. He's um, somebody that we look to. I think maybe a little bit more last year to to, to explode and and emerge and and. He, in some ways, was 
was kind of a, not a possession receiver, but remember he, it took him a long time to get his first touchdown last season. You know, this year he's, he's scoring from all over the place. And, uh, you know, Chris Denton, I think, is the guy that Mountain Union likes to send deep down the field. And Jasper Collins is a guy who can do just about everything you ask him to do from a receiver spot. So he's really w- was, was outstanding on Saturday and has been. And I think that's important for Mountain Union going forward because, again, they don't have the dominant – Nate Kamick type of running back or Chuck Moore, Dan Pugh type of guy in the backfield. They got sort of a mix of guys in the backfield, and that means we put a little more pressure on their passing game. And, you know, I actually have a follow-up thought and observation about Collins, but um, I have a feeling we'll get another opportunity to talk about Mountain Union in a future Around the Nation podcast, so maybe we'll just move on and we'll talk about the Widener-Salisbury game, uh, a game in which, uh, you know, Salisbury and the triple option did what sometimes the triple option does. They put the ball on the turf a couple times and Widener turned those into points in the first half. Yeah, because it was a slug. It was kind of an ugly game. And not a, I don't mean that as an insult, but I mean sometimes you get in that game in the playoffs where two teams are, are chirping at each other, they're battling, uh, the hits are hard, the weather's awful, and it just becomes that kind of football game. And, and uh, for a quarter and a half, it was scoreless. And, you know, for for as high powered as both these offenses are, that was a little bit surprising. Widener, you know, their base offense is basically empty backfield. They like to go. Um, I've never seen a team run quads as much as as, as Widener runs it. They'll line up four guys, um, you know, sometimes all on the line of scrimmage. You know, of course, you know, the, the flankers have to back off the line a little, but they'll run. They'll, they'll have four guys in a diamond type of bunch formation. Uh, they do all kinds of different things to spread the field and they, they keep a defense honest as far as throwing it out of the backfield, uh, running reverses and all that type of stuff. So you think, you know, they, they would score more. But they, they, it's kind of their, their style. They're a little bit streaky. They have lulls in, in the game. But I think also a lot of it was Salisbury was playing well on defense early in that game. And so um, Salisbury had a little trouble getting points on the board. They got an early field goal blocked and then uh, fumbled it twice. And that led to two Widener touchdowns. And that kind of gave Widener the breathing room they needed to tee off defensively and uh, put a little more distance between them and, and, and Salisbury in the second half. Sherman Wood, you know, was was surprised. He said, I never in my life thought we'd only score seven points against Widener. And, you know, part of that was was due to Salisbury having kind of an uncharacteristic game where they uh, really never broke off uh, any big runs. Uh, they, they had, you know, one call back to a hold. And they, they were just, you know, penal, penalty-wise, uh, Coach Wood called it embarrassing. Um, you know, they, they didn't have their best game. But I, th- I think part of that was due to Widener's defense. And, and Widener really... Uh, played well defensively and got a chance to talk to Coach Collins a little bit after the game. And uh, and he said that he'd never seen a team um, play the option, the triple option, as well as, as they did on Saturday. I mean, 18 years of, of, of you know, coaching, they executed, you know, uh, that game plan better than anyone that, that I've ever coached. You know, and we've you know, had some pretty good defenses uh, back in the Lehigh days, you know, defending Walford and some of those players. But these guys came out and they just, they, they were 100% play action pass time and they played the time of football. And they were so proud of even on a couple of the long runs that they got, it was just a guy missing, but they lined up the next play and got back after it. You know, and, and on top of that, the way that um, Widener played the option, 
Uh, I think there were a couple of big stories that, that come out of the uh, the defense, the Widener defense. You know, we talk so much about this this high powered offense that they have. You know, I thought the defense was outstanding on Saturday. Um, Stacy Sunnerville is a freshman defensive end, I believe, who who um, had to come into the game when they Widener had an injury, and uh, he had like 15 tackles, three tackles for losses. But I thought the the amazing thing about that was that a backup was able to come in and play against this option scheme and have a great game. You know, a freshman backup comes off the bench and and, and has an outstanding game and and doesn't you know ne- never lets you know, Salisbury get the edge or, or, you know, you know, Salisbury make a read. Salisbury try to, you know, run play action and, and all these kind of things to, to get Widener's defense off kilter. And, and, and really it, it never worked. And that's so uncharacteristic because every time, you know, eventually Salisbury or, or eventually a triple option offense will hit a big play and it really never happened. Uh, and, you know, Jamal Dorsey uh, had the, the uh, big, fumble recovery that turned the game in, in the second quarter. Really, it was just uh, Dan Griffin, I think, uh, you know, it was a third and five play, and, and he just bobbled the ball uh, either on the exchange or it, it kind of you know came out, and, and Dorsey was just the man on the spot in that one. But he's made big plays for them all, all year. And so, you know, they were opportunistic defensively. I thought they were disciplined defensively. And then, you know, the guy who stood out, best player on the field, hands down, uh, on Saturday, it was Anthony Davis, the uh, wide receiver for Widener. He had uh, 11 catches for 201 yards, but his most impressive play may have been um, the 26-yard reverse that he took in for the for the first touchdown. Widener specifically, because they've they've had to deal with teams in the MAC who who will double team Davis and uh, and you know pay a lot of attention to him. They specifically moved him around, uh, tried to get him the ball different ways, and uh, and Salisbury didn't have an answer for it. Over the course of the game, I think initially they did, um, but but eventually uh, Davis got the ball, and, and and it got to a point where it was you know if it was third down, uh, you know Chris Hop was was going to go to Anthony Davis, and maybe everybody in the stadium knew it, but nobody could stop it. Well, that saves me having to ask you about Anthony Davis. So let's uh, move ahead to the Mount Union Widener matchup. Yeah, I mean the the main thing about this is that Widener. Um, they're not looking at this game scared. They're approaching this, I think, with the with the right mentality. Um, the you know, uh, Coach Collins, I think, is confident that that they could put together a good game plan. And uh, Jamal Dorsey actually was the one who 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 said that uh, you know basically these guys put on their pants like us. They're a good football team, just like us. We think we can beat them. Watch film. Um, listen, to our coaches. They're gonna. They have a game plan, so. If we stick to the game plan, I don't think it's going to be a beat. Dorsey talks about executing the game plan. I I wonder if by uh, at this time next week we'll be talking about Isaac Collins saying they executed our game plan against a purple power the best I've ever seen anybody do it in 18 years. <laughs> well, if if it's an upset, you know they they certainly will have have to have, have executed well because Mount Union is not going to. Uh, you know, put the ball down five or seven times or anything like that. Those guys don't make very many mistakes. But here's the reason I think Widener is approaching this right and why a part of me really kind of likes this team going out there in a, in a kooky sort of way. Like, I, I think these these guys are going to make this an interesting game more than you would assume a MAC champion would at Mount Union. Um you know, one of the quotes that that I didn't get on tape because it, it wasn't me asking the question was uh, was Anthony Davis saying, um, "Yeah, just Mount Union is just another team." 
and, and you heard Jamal Dorsey say, you know, they're a good team, we're a good team. And I, I think if the players buy into it, you know, if, if they don't believe they can go out to Mountain Union and win, you know, who, who is going to believe it, right? So these guys are buying in. They're saying, look, this is our, this is an opportunity. This is not, oh my gosh, how are we going to go out to Mountain Union and play these, these guys? They're saying, hey, we got an opportunity to prove how good we are. And, and to be honest, that's the way you got to approach it. You got to go out there and not be scared. But, the, you know, the big thing, I think, for Widener is is they, they can't have the lulls because Mountain Union can score in a hurry. And uh, I think Widener has the offense to match Mountain Union's offense if it turns into a shootout. But the, the question is, can the defense, and, and the Widener defense was outstanding on Saturday, can that defense slow down the Mountain Union offense? And, and if so, we could be in for a better game than we usually see against Mountain Union in the third round. Strengths and weaknesses for Mountain Union, if weaknesses, if any? I think Mountain Union does have a weakness, and I think it's it's the running game. They, they you know, use Burke um, a little bit, you know, the read option with him, and uh, it's nice that they have a quarterback that can run, but they don't, uh, they don't, they don't necessarily get everything they want in the running game. And, and, you know, the goal line stand against Johns Hopkins is a great option. They two carries to Lattimore and then Burke on fourth down and, and got stuffed each time. And this is this is the Johns Hopkins defensive line, you know, which is, as we talked about in previous podcasts, a little bigger than 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 most Centennial Conference lines, but not um, not like, you know, something you see further down in the playoffs. So they, they, they don't have the run game where they can just bull ahead and do whatever they want. And so the Mountain Union will have to be, be disciplined, play well, take care of the ball to, to move the ball on the Widener defense. Widener's, uh, they, they've got some speed on the defensive end, so they, they may get to Burke a couple of times in, in this game, and they're going to have to make something happen uh, with that defense to keep the Mountain Union offense uh, off kilter. And how about the Widener side of the ball? Yeah, I think the Widener weakness is those those lulls they have in the game. And part of it is by design. You know, Coach Collins was talking about how the whole goal for the defense is to to hold fort or hold court, I think he was saying, until until the offense breaks a big play. And if you look back at, at the Widener box score um from this week, you know, all the all the scoring drives are two plays, three plays, four plays. They they hit a big play. Uh that's you know, that that's probably true over the course of the season if if you look back at Widener. Um, because they have they have really a lot, so much talent offensively, you know, we'll talk mostly about Anthony Davis, but they have uh, a couple of guys who who are coming on. Uh, uh, Connor Schlegel, I, I believe, I'm saying his name right. He he had a nice game on um, on Saturday. You know, they have probably four or five guys that they use frequently at receiver, and all those guys, um, you know, capable of, of taking it to the house. But they can't against Mount Union. I don't think you could have a lull of a quarter and a half like you can. Like like Widener has been able to get away with a couple times a season, and I know part of that is like I said, that's by design. Their defense, their job is to just you know, get off the field, get the get the ball back to that offense, so I can hit a big play. But if Widener is not moving the ball, if they're not hitting those big plays, they, they're going to have to do something to you know to to be able to be effective uh, over the course of a quarter, quarter and a half, two quarters. They can't have those lulls because I don't think Mount Union is going to go. A, two quarters without scoring. One of the other things that happened this past week, and I know we've just spent an hour and about five minutes talking about the Division Three playoffs, but there was something pretty important in the Division Three football world and in the college football world in general that happened away from the playoffs uh, this past week, and that was uh, St. John's head coach John Gillardi uh, finally calling it a career after 60 years at St. John's, 64 years as a collegiate head coach, and 489 career wins all time. Um, I was talking with a 
radio station out of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, uh, earlier in the week uh, about this, and you know, just to, he asked me to try to put it in perspective, and I'm like, well, let's see, um, I'm I'm going to be turning 40 here in a few weeks. Uh, John Gillardi won two national championships as a coach before I was even born, and then won two of them since, including them one of them in the past decade. It was a guy who's been. Uh, you know, at, at the top of his game for, for many, many, many years. You, you talk about the, the, the guys who, you know, not just the sons of players who come back and play for John Gallardi, but now the grandsons of players that he've co- he's coached have come back and, and played for him as well, including his own grandsons. Uh, if 489 career wins, obviously, is more than anybody in college football history. And it's just hard to put into perspective what this guy's done because they have, you know, won these 489 games so many different ways in so many different eras of football. Yeah. And and that kind of ties in with what I was going to say, as far as how you want to put it in perspective, we had some photos on the, on the website, uh, of, of John Gallardi over the years. And, and, you know, initially he's very skinny and, and, you know, wearing a kind of, you know, button up type of type suit as a coach and then you know he's got a he's got horn rim glasses and a funky shirt in the 70s and then you know you you reference people knowing him as a grandfather type you know that's how he is now he's an older guy and you know over the past I don't know 10 years or so he's you know scaled back some of his duties and, and let uh Gary Fashing and Jimmy Gallardi take take some of the the you know coordinator duties and the coaching duties and he's been um, you know, still a coach on game days, but also an overseer and a, and, a, and a leader. But I think he's been the spirit of that program for a long time. And he was really the spirit of, of small college football in a lot of ways. When you think about, you know, what he did with the uh, with the no tackling and the, uh, you know, not having calisthenics and all that stuff that you read in the different books about him. Um, you know, he also was when you talk about spirit, too, he was just a just a good guy to be around. I mean, he never lost a sense of humor. He always was joking with us. You you could, you know, hardly get a straight answer out of him sometimes because he always had something funny to say, which is uh, I, I thought it was refreshing, you know, for for someone who I, I don't know. He was never, you know, he he, he built the program and he could have been arrogant about it, but I, I didn't ever get that sense from him. First time I ever talked to him, he treated me like I, you know, you know, like he knew me for years. And so, you know, I don't know if that's because he was he was older and he forgot he had he talked to me before or not. But uh, I, I never got the sense that he was losing his uh, sharpness. I think he was every time I talked to him over the course of twelve years, he was as sharp and 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 as witty as you would much much sharper and wittier than you would expect a guy who was in his eighties to be. And, you know, Keith, I really never th- got the impression that the reason why uh, John was giving up the job was because of uh, lack of sharpness. I really think it's always been uh, lack of energy. And, you know, the guy's 86 years old. If I have that kind of energy when I'm 86 or when I'm 76, for that matter, I'll be ecstatic because that's a lot of work that goes into, you know, coaching a collegiate program, no matter how much you're able to turn over to. Uh, coordinators and, and other assistant coaches and how much you're able to delegate administrative duties and that sort of thing. So I, I really think that, uh, you know, this is a, obviously a, an opportunity for St. John's to do something that they haven't done since 1953, and that's to go out and hire a head football coach. And, you know, the name that keeps coming up is Mike Grant. And for those who uh, don't know who Mike Grant is, I'll try to give you a, a quick thumbnail sketch. 
Mike Grant is a guy. Uh, he's Bud Grant's son. Bud Grant, a legendary former Minnesota Vikings head coach. Uh, Mike played for John Gillardy at St. John's. He coached under John Gillardy there. And currently he's the head coach of arguably the most successful high school football program in the state, uh, Eden Prairie High School. Uh, Eden Prairie is a, 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 a suburb of Minneapolis and would certainly uh, help St. John's in recruiting in that area because St. Thomas has really done very well in the metro area over the past few years, and St. John's has lost quite a few recruiting battles. Uh, that would give uh, St. John's uh, and prospective St. John's students, you know, some some instant credibility in terms of you know this is a guy who's won state championships and he his. Uh, his, his uh, program won the state championship again this year in 6A, which is newly the highest uh, classification of state high school football here in Minnesota. Obviously, he's not the only candidate, um, but he's one of the guys who has you know both head coaching experience, if not on the college level, and also uh, a, a strong tie to the Johnny tradition. Yeah, Mike Grant's a name who's come up as long as this, the discussions have been, been coming up about you know whether John would step down. And uh, he's, you know, as you mentioned, not the only name in the mix. Gary Foshing is another one that comes up, another logical one. But I think Mike, Mike Grant is a logical name for all the reasons that you pointed out, Pat. And, uh, you know, it, what's interesting to me is that the, the word has come out, I guess, that, that Mike Grant had said he would, he would consider it if St. John's was serious about getting back to the national championship game, which I think is, is an interesting comment for a few reasons, you know, one being, Obviously, if you if you're someone from the Johnny family and you had it and you were a successful coach, you had an opportunity to uh, to to step into that job. Of course, it's it's tough to follow a legend, but it'd be hard to find a better situation to go into in uh, in in really in any kind of football, not just Division three football, but somewhere where you have the uh, the administration support, you have the uh, you know really the fan support, and you have the 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 you know name recognition where you can go out and recruit. And, uh, and and build a program, you know, fairly quickly. It's already, uh, you know, it was five and five this year, but it's already got the things that take a lot of a lot of people, a lot of programs, years to build up. It would be really a great situation to step into. And if it's not Mike Grant or Gary Foshing, if it, if if someone, you know, from the the D three stratosphere or the college stratosphere uh, falls into St. John's lap, it, it's going to be a, a real good job. It's it's a place you can win. And uh, maybe win pretty quickly, especially uh, it, it would be nice to get that rivalry uh, with, with St. Thomas back up on the level. If you're a prospective job applicant, first of all, hurry, because I think they're trying to make a decision before Christmas. But secondly, I would recommend reading The Sweet Season, uh, a book by Austin Murphy, which chronicled the St. John's 2000 football season, if I remember correctly. Um, you can get uh, far more detail than you would about any other a small college program. And so if you figure there would probably be a, a couple of hundred applicants for that uh, position as well, just because of uh, the the uh, the legend of John Gillardi and the legacy that he leaves for small college football and especially for Division three football. And, and that also is uh, is borne out by the, the trophy that bears his name, the Gillardi Trophy, which was... Uh, put together by the uh, Johnny's alumni group back in the early 90s, but is the now that really the preeminent 
Division Three football award because it encompasses the whole of the student athlete, not just football prowess like the Heisman does, but also all the things that a well-rounded Division Three student athlete uh, should have is rolled up into this award, uh, namely academics and community service. And while you know there are always uh, it seemingly names left off of the final ten, and Keith and I have no say in the final ten, although we do get to have a ballot at this point, um, you know. It does seem like there are a couple of notable exceptions, but also a pretty good group. Yeah, I think every time they, they whittle the group down to the final 10, it's usually an amazing group of kids. And what always stands out to me from the uh, the voters packet that we get are the uh, you know the, the letters from the president and from the coaches and how effusive the praise is. And it, and it never comes off to me as, as praise that isn't genuine, that, that they're just making this stuff up so they can get their recognition that comes along, along with the uh, Gallardi Trophy. It really seems like they're genuinely amazed to have kids like this on their campus and representing their football team. So whenever they get down to this final 10, you know, they're impressive guys. But but at the same time, you know, the Gallardi Trophy com- the committee, the J Club is very specific about saying we want you to incorporate, um, you know, the well-rounded student athlete. But it's primarily a football award. And so we want we want to give it to the best football player. And you look at this final 10, it, it's definitely got, you know, three guys who I think, um, you know, who would be in anybody's final 10 in, in, in Nate Wara, uh, Nick Driscoll, Scotty Williams. And, and there are a couple other, you know, you know, real standout guys on there. McCallum Foote, Luke Hines and, 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 you know, the whole top 10 is a great bunch. But I think there's some names uh, certainly missing from a competitive standpoint. You, the Mary Harden Baylor guys, uh, you know. Uh, Ladera Bailey, the quarterback, Javis Jones, the the linebacker, who we talked to talked about probably an hour ago on this podcast. Um, you know, those guys I think would have had a shot at winning the award if they were in the final ten, and I'm not sure why they aren't. Uh, but you can have your uh, vote in the uh, on these final ten candidates. Uh, there are 38 ballots. Uh, Keith and I, as I mentioned, each have a, a ballot, and there's a 39th ballot, which is. Uh, set aside for the cumulative fan vote. So you can vote on d3football.com. It's in our front page uh, front page story rotation. And we'll stay there through noon Eastern time on Monday, December 3rd. That's a week from now if you're listening to this podcast on the day it comes out. So you have your uh, opportunity to cast uh, one vote per device, whether that's your laptop, desktop computer, uh, tablet, cell phone, you know, Xbox, whatever. Uh, you you have your opportunity to cast a ballot. I believe more than 50,000 votes were cast the last time around. And since we as voters will rank all 10 candidates from uh, 10 at the top down to one at the bottom, we'll do the same thing with the cumulative fan vote. Whoever gets the most votes will get that top spot on that 39th ballot and so forth and so on. And there will be, of course, uh, a uh, again this year, they will whittle it down to the final four, and for the second year in a row, all four will come with us to Salem, and we will have a uh, unveiling ceremony and announcement live on the internet on Wednesday night, December twelfth, down there. That was a pretty good show last year, Keith. Yeah, it was. You know, I think the opportunity to get to know uh, some Division three players on the level that that we don't normally get to know them, and and you know by the time you get down to the final four, they're really just outstanding guys. You can't help but root for them, and uh, I, I'm sure we're going to have another another final four some who who really just uh, you know stand out players, but also people that you'll root for in life after football. 
So keep an eye out for that uh, and get your votes in over the course of the next week. Also on the site, we will have uh, another uh, slate of Road to Salem features, features on the uh, eight remaining teams or eight of, uh, uh, of the remaining teams in the Division Three playoffs as we get you ready for Saturday, the national quarterfinals. We'll have our triple take again on Friday where we predict uh, the scores of each of the four remaining games. Uh, it's been We've had some great fan participation in that over the previous couple of weeks, and you can uh, post your own comments on the on the Daily Dose and get your uh, get your take in there as well, joining the Triple Take. So, for Keith McMillan, I'm Pat Coleman. That's the Around the Nation podcast for November 26th, 2012. The Around the Nation podcast is sponsored by the City of Salem, hosts of Stag Bowl 40. Tickets on sale now at www.salemciviccenter.com. Stag Bowl 40, Friday night, December 14th, 2012. We hope to see you in Salem.